0: Well, if you're anything like me, I just kind of want to sit in this moment and just let this next hour and a half just really drag out so that we don't have to be separated again. But um, it is so good to be with you all. We have missed you so very much and um, we trust you've been well and uh, you all look so good and um, really excited. The next few weeks we will begin opening our Sunday services and uh, you should have gotten an email that will kind of unpack um, how we're going to open services. If you did not get that email, please contact the church office. we want to make sure that, that you know how we're going to do that and you are in the loop and everything. Um, we want to encourage you, if you have not been able to keep up with our series on Wednesday nights, you can catch up on YouTube. Uh, every Wednesday is recorded. And basically what we've been doing is we've been going through a series. Um, the title is For Our Good. Basically what we've been doing is unpacking a lot of um, theological concepts and words and verbiage and trying to really make them understandable for the average person. Um, there are so many things in the, in the Christian faith that can be so confusing and so frustrating when you hear them in a pulpit or hear them um, in a sermon or in a song even. And so what we want to do is kind of break those down a little bit, make them a little bit more um, edible for us so that we can understand at a different level. Um, so you can catch up on YouTube uh, if you want to. Before we get started tonight, Um, I want to express um, my heartfelt um, sorrow and my grief um, for our brothers and sisters in the black community um, this week. Um, There has been just tremendous um, pain and hurting. And um, if you you have not uh, yet checked your email, pastor sent out an email today to kind of address um, these things. But um, as a pastor on staff, um, I want you to know that um, if you are a part of that community that we stand with you, and um, we, we vow to be a part of the solution uh, moving forward. And so we love you so much. Uh, tonight, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna go ahead and um, jump in. What we're gonna do is we're gonna be focusing in Ephesians chapter four tonight, primarily. And um, just to give you a little bit of a background, Uh, What we're going to do tonight is we're going to focus on what we call the fivefold ministry of the church. OK, in context, when you open to Ephesians chapter four, what you see is Paul begin to talk about all of these giftings and how they are um, these individuals are gifts for the church for the betterment of the church. But what's important to understand is that the first three chapters of Ephesians, what Paul is doing is he is just going on, literally, he is going on a rampage. He is just ranting about the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, how we have come from death to life and we are new creations. Um, He's talking about, how Gentiles and Jews are now one race and they're coming together and we are all, you know, um, together in this thing. And it's a beautiful depiction of the gospel. And so what he does is he kind of sets us up to understand that this is all that's happened. And then as we approach chapter four, now what he's doing is he's saying, this has all happened. And now here is a taste of what's to come. So it's kind of like a, um, a movie. I'll give you a. a I'll tell you a, a terrible little secret that I have. Um, One of my all-time favorite movies is the original Godfather. And I know this is a a terrible movie. I will say this, I've never seen the unedited version. I've only seen the edited version, okay? And the edited version is bad enough, okay? So I never plan to see the unedited version. Um, But I'll say this, um, I love the story, I love the storyline, I love the, the evolution of the characters and all these kind of things. But at the very end of the movie, although it's very horrific and and (laughs) terrible, what you see at the end of that movie is you see a character becoming something and it gives you a taste in the last four minutes of the movie of what's to come in the next movie. So it's kind of like this is all that has happened in the past, Here is a taste of what's to come before it actually comes. This is the picture that we get in in the book of Ephesians. This is what we get in, in chapters one through three. This is the past. And in chapter four, this is a taste of what's to come in the New Testament church as far as structure and strategy and how the Lord is going to, to use his people. And so um, if you got your Bibles tonight, um, we're gonna be in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, it's okay. It should be on the screen uh, behind me, but uh, let's read together. Paul writes this to the Ephesians. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastor and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, which is the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature In the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then, in other words, what he's saying, he's saying, after these gifts of God have been implemented into the church, following that, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love and so tonight we're gonna we're gonna unpack what it means to uh, be an apostle and a prophet and an evangelist and a pastor and a teacher and some nuances with all that but before we even get into that let me just make this incredibly clear Um, there are a lot of different interpretations to this particular scripture right here and so tonight my goal is not to tell you you know why we don't call Pastor Chitty Bishop Chitty. Um, my goal is is not to go into all the reasons why we do and don't do certain things. The goal tonight is just to say this is the way that we interpret these scriptures and how we play it out here at, at Christian Life as a part of our ministry philosophy. Okay. So when we talk about the fivefold ministry, you have you have seen Pastor give this this illustration before. Um, he uses his hand with with the, all the five fingers and he basically says that that the prophets represent or the pointer finger represents the prophets because they have a unique ability to hear the voice of god that is able to to call certain things out in people and to kind of give direction prophetically to the church. Uh, The second uh, finger, the middle finger, which is the the longest finger uh, for most people, unless there's been an accident or something. For most people, um, it is the longest finger, the farthest reaching finger, which is representative of the evangelist who has this unique anointing to be able to reach people that the average Christian just doesn't have the ability to reach um the the pastor which is on the ring finger which represents the covenant uh so the pastor uh is one who is not itinerant and and goes from church to church and ministry to ministry but a pastor is committed to the local church to a body of believers to to a flock um fourthly we have what we call the teacher and uh pastor he he is so funny and so great but he, he says that the teacher has a unique ability, just like this finger to get into places that the other fingers may not have the ability to get into. But the teacher has the unique ability to find things in scripture and to understand scripture in a very detailed, precise manner that the average person just, they, they struggle in, in that regard. And so the teacher is a gift. And then uh, the thumb, which represents the apostle is basically the apostle that gives oversight and possesses a a unique type of authority and provides structure to the church and is able to influence and touch all the other four um, levels of ministry. And so um, as we, as we talk about these, these five tonight, we kind of uh, dissect them a little bit. It's important to understand that, that again, there are a lot of different opinions about, um, you know, who should be called what and what the real functionality is and all this kind of stuff. But um, in general, I just kind of want to give you the three overarching opinions about the fivefold ministry. Okay, so one opinion is that um, the fivefold ministry was at one time a thing, it existed, and the prophets and apostles and all this existed, and they were for the foundation of the church and the benefit of the church, but the first opinion um, believes that these apostles and the prophets died out in the first century. And so when the, when the first century, you know, after Christ had ascended, those who had um, witnessed uh, his resurrected body, um, which was one of the requirements to be an apostle, to see the risen Lord, um, once those people had died out, there there's a group of individ- individuals that believe that the apostleship, uh, or the office of the prophet, um, or the apostle basically died out. They believe the same thing about the prophets. The second type of opinion, believes that prophets and apostles died out as far as their office goes, but they believe that there are remnants of apostles and prophets within the other levels of ministry. So they believe that they're like like, um, shreds of apostolic ministry and prophetic ministry within. Uh, The third opinion, which is where we we would likely settle, is the opinion that all five of these uh, fivefold ministries are separate and distinguished offices and all of them still remain in operation today, okay? Now, let me explain that a little bit um, because I know there has been some real abuse in the church um, over the past couple of centuries. And so, to to give a little bit of explanation, um, it's important to understand that that we do believe that um, what we call an office exists. We believe that when Paul is writing these fivefold, he says these are the gifts that God has given to the church. We believe that Paul isn't saying this is just a lot of gifts that he's giving out. We believe that he is speaking to individual people as gifts. In other words, this person is a gift to your church because they hold the office of an apostle. They are an apostle. In this other side of things, we believe that not only is there an office or a calling of an apostle or a prophet or a teacher, et cetera, not only do we believe that that, that exists as an individual calling, but we also believe that it exists as a gifting. Okay, so for, um, for example, um, Pastor Justin, for example, he holds the office of a pastor, okay? It is his calling in life. It is his lot in life. He believes that, uh, that is, God has distinguished him to hold the office of a pastor. But when you look across our church congregation, you see a lot of pastoral people, right? You see a lot of people that carry pastoral giftings, but they don't necessarily occupy the office of a pastor. Are you guys following me? Okay, so we haven't been in church in a while, so I know it can be a little, you know. Uh, so so though Pastor Justin may feel this distinct call, we have a church full of people that carry pastoral giftings, right? So um, it's the same as true for a person who may, feel that they hold the office of a prophet. Let's take Bobby Connor for example, who was here at our church a couple years ago. We believe that Bobby Connor is a modern-day prophet. We believe that he holds and possesses the office of a modern-day prophet. But when you look at our church family, you see a lot of people that have prophetic giftings. Right now, they are not necessarily in the office of a prophet, but God uses them in prophetic ways. And so it's important to distinguish the office and the gifts of these fivefold ministries, because in the Church of Christ, you're going to see people that possess certain giftings that that you may look at and you may identify, oh, that's a that's a teaching type of gift and it very well may be so, but that does not necessarily mean that they possess the office or the calling to be a teacher. Does that make sense? Okay, so as we, as we unfold and, and kind of look at the structure, the New Testament structure of the church, the first thing, the most important thing I think is, is to remember this, that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. He is the head of the church. We call pastor our pastor, But I'll tell you this, pastor would even identify this, that he submits himself to Christ as the head of the church. Pastor understands that Jesus is ultimately the senior pastor of this church and pastor is a representative of him. And so we have to understand that that Paul identified not only Jesus as as the foundation, but he said he is the cornerstone of the church. In other words, nothing can be built without Christ as the cornerstone. And so as we, as we talk about the foundation of the church, it's important for us to always understand that although these, these giftings are incredible, and although they're incredible men and women of God who possess the offices of some of these ministries, that Jesus is ultimately the one that we all look to because he is the head and the foundation of the church. Now, when we begin to talk about the individual giftings, uh, the first one that we're gonna tackle tonight is the, the, the apostles, okay? Um, In scripture, we see that there are really uh, two different types of apostles that are identified in scripture. Now, Paul would say that there are certain qualifications to be an apostle. One of those qualifications, he would say, is that you uh, had to see the risen Lord, okay? You had to see him in his resurrected form. And so there is like an original group of apostles, such as uh, Peter or the apostle John, Uh, Matthew would be considered one of these apostles Um, and their role is to, especially in the first century church, was to establish authority, to give a type of structure to the church. So this is why in the book of Acts you see uh, Ananias and Sapphira. When they come in, when they're called into the carpet, they're not called just before, you know, some random group of people to be, you know, their fate to be decided. They are brought before Peter. They're brought before him because he is an apostle and he possesses this authority that the average person doesn't. Um, The very word apostle means a person who is sent out and commissioned. So the original apostles, the original 12, um, they were people that were unique. We're gonna call them the original apostles. Um, There's a second layer of apostles that we find in scripture. They are not, we we need to be careful not to classify them as like second tier apostles, okay? They're not, um, they just happen to come later than the original apostles but it's important to understand that they were different than the original apostles. The original apostles had a specific calling, a very unique type of ministry, a foundational ministry that was very important and commissioned to them by Jesus. The second level of apostles um, is is people identified in scripture like Silas and, and Barnabas. Even Paul himself, technically speaking, Kind of falls into this second, I'm not even gonna call it a second tier, I'm gonna call it a second generation of apostles. Um, He kind of falls into this after the original he is a continuation of the apostleship. Um, Paul, he says himself, he says, um, I was born at at the wrong time, basically is what he says. I was born out of season um, because I saw Jesus in his risen form. And so you see all throughout some of Paul's writings, he is, uh, there's almost like this hint that he is like defending himself as one of the original apostles. He believes that maybe he should have been in the same allotment with the original apostles. And so sometimes when you're reading him, um, you can take a step back and you're like, whoa, is Paul being defensive here? And it, and it kind of comes across this way where he's saying, look, they're, they're, you know, we're no different. We're, we're kind of the same. And and he may have been right, but in a very, very technical sense, he was a part of this second generation. He did see the Lord, the, the risen Lord, but he saw the risen Lord after the ascension. Does that make sense? The original apostles saw the risen Lord before the ascension, and Paul saw him after, and so there's a little bit of distinction there, but I can understand Paul's frustration. Um, uh, in the in the opening chapters of Acts, you have the eleven apostles. They're gathered with others in the in the upper room, and and they're praying. They're waiting on the Spirit to come, and they realize that Judas is no longer with them. Judas has has betrayed Christ, and now he's he's ended his own life. And they come together, and they they decide. Listen, we've got to replace him. There's got to be twelve. Jesus called for twelve. There's only eleven. There's got to be twelve, and so. The Bible says that they do um, what what they were taught to do in their uh, Hebrew culture. They they go and they they pray and they cast lots, and the lot falls to a man named Matthias, and and so he becomes the twelfth apostle. And so when you hear readings like Paul, when he says, "Look, I was born out of time," basically what he was saying is that I should have been there when Matthias. And there there are a lot of scholars that say, "Yeah, Paul should have been." The 12th apostle, um, there are some that say, you know, the, the, the 11 apostles, they missed it. You know, they, they got nervous, they got anxious, they got in a hurry, and they just, they said, we gotta fix this, and they cast lots. They didn't wait on the Lord. Um, no, we won't know this side of history, but the reality is, is that there are a couple different layers in scripture when it comes to who the apostles were, okay? Now today, uh, we do embrace and believe that there is still an office of apostle. We believe that uh, this office is a, is, can be an individual, um, a rare individual usually, who possesses a very unique type of leadership authority um, it is not just every person who has strong leadership gifting is an apostle. That is not the situation. This is a distinct calling that qualifies a person who has a unique sense of authority over the people that is spiritually sensed. Um, they they give a type of structure to the church, like uh, sometimes in a global way. I think of I think of guys like um, Brian Houston out of the Hillsong movement, and I know that there are theological complications, no matter who I say, there are theological complications, but um, the reality is when you look at a man like Brian Houston, it's easy to see how he may be classified as a person who is a modern day apostle. He has a global reach, he gives structure and authority to the church, people recognize him uh, on a spiritual level as one who has a different sense of authority than the average person. Um, But I will say this, I I think we've got to be very careful and understanding that when we're talking about the office of a modern day apostle, um, I think that, that we've got to be careful when it comes to people who are self-proclaimed modern day apostles. Okay, is that fair? Um, an apostleship is such a high and unique calling that in my personal humble, ridiculous opinion that nobody probably cares about. Um, My opinion is that this is an office that should probably be recognized, not determined within oneself. It should be recognized by the body of Christ and they should be elevated in that way. And so we do believe that the office of uh, of an apostle still remains today, but probably a lot more common is what we believe is the apostolic ministry that still remains within people today. Okay, so for instance, um, if you look at our, our pastor, if you look at Pastor Chitty, um, he will tell you that he believes he holds the office of a pastor, right? But if you know him, you know that he has apostolic leanings. You know that there is some level of apostolic leadership within him, but he will tell you to your face that he does not consider himself to be in the office of an apostle, okay? He believes that he is in the office of a pastor with apostolic leanings, with some prophetic leanings, with some teaching leanings. Um, and that's the unique thing about these fivefold ministry. Uh, a person whom God has called to be a part, to hold one of these offices, there's a lot of overlap there. You know what I mean? It's, it's very rare that you'll see somebody who is just an evangelist and they don't know how to teach the Bible. It is very rare that you'll see an apostle that, you know, they, they don't know how to love and care for people. The reality is this, is that there, there are a, a lot of overlap overlapping things that happen um, with these. And so instead of, um, uh, one way to to look at it may be to say that, um, like for pastor, for uh, example, I would consider pastor a pastor, but I would say that he is a prophetic pastor, okay? I would not say that he is a pastoral prophet because he doesn't consider himself in the office of a prophet, he has prophetic leanings. Am I clear? Am I being clear? Okay. Uh, he has prophetic leanings, but he is a pastor. So we would say that he is a prophetic pastor, not a pastoral prophet. I would say a man like Bobby Connor is a pastoral prophet. If you ever talk to him personally, you feel like you're one of his children. He is, he is very caring and loving. He's very pastoral, but he holds the office um, of a prophet, okay? And so um, when we when we talk about apostles, I know that's, that's more of a, a rare kind of thing, and I know there is a lot of confusion in the church. There really, really is in the modern day church about who should be considered apostles and different things like that. My opinion is I'm not going to get involved at uh, that level because that is far above my pay grade, um, but we need to use discernment. We need to look to scripture. We need to ask wisdom. Um, we need to ask really qualifying positive questions before um, we begin identifying people um, in these offices. The second level that, that we classify is what we call prophets. Um, in scripture, you'll see prophets uh, were people who had incredibly unique insights, right? Um, they, they are known for, like, when we typically think of a prophet in scripture, we typically lean, we, we immediately go to somebody who can predict the future, right? They're, they're, they're predicting a, a, another pandemic, or they're predicting, you know, the downfall of a nation, all these kind of things. And that is very, very true in most cases. But prophets are not just limited to their miracles or being able to predict the future. There is a gift of foretelling at times. God may give them insights to events that are going to happen in the future. But prophets are very strong in the gift of also um, foretelling. Okay so there's a diff- there's there's foretelling which is kind of like predicting certain events or what God is going to do but there's foretelling which is a very direct clear word from the Lord which causes deep repentance to come quickly Okay? The prophetic office carries that type of anointing. We see this all throughout scripture. Um, we see in the Old Testament where um, most prophets were able, in, in just by God's providence, they were usually able to gain an audience with a king or a ruler. Uh, you see Moses, who is... A shepherd boy out in the the middle of nowhere, and then he comes into Egypt, and immediately he has an an audience with the Pharaoh. Uh, We see Jeremiah. We see him have audience with multiple rulers, and and so God has a unique favor upon their lives when it comes to um, uh, rulers and people in in great levels of authority, because um, prophets, scripturally speaking, would oftentimes have a unique perspective, uh, God's perspective, about situations that the average human being just would not usually have. Oftentimes when you see a prophet show up in the scripture, they are speaking about something not necessarily hundreds or thousands of years in advance. Oftentimes they're speaking to a very real-time event that's going on and the people of the nation are trying to discern and figure out what's going on. And so they call the prophet, the prophet stands in and the prophet says, thus saith the Lord. This is the Lord's perspective on what's unfolding. And so this is how we, we see the prophets all throughout scripture. Um, we see them given direction. We see them uh, forewarning people about different things. I think of Agabus in the book of Acts who, who goes to Paul and he says, listen, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are gonna happen, right? And Paul does it anyway. But Agabus stands in the gap for Paul and he says, listen, the Lord has shown me that if you go, you're gonna be bound up, some bad things are gonna happen. And so they had this unique ability to forewarn us about things that God has revealed to them. Um, this is what we see in scripture. Today, modern day prophets oftentimes carry a very similar role. They have a lot of these same um, unique um, uh, uh, insights. They they have a profound sense of seeing and hearing from the Lord. Um, there is a unique draw to intimacy with the Lord uh, that the average person just usually doesn't possess. Um, I was uh, my wife and I love uh, watching uh, the National uh, Geographic Channel and the Serengeti documentaries and all these kind of things. And um, sometimes when I see an animal on there, I'll start researching it and go in all this you know deep dark hole about how fascinating they are. And um, I was reading one time about um, elephants in in um, on the African continent, and elephants have a a very distinct feature that most people, they may assume, but they really don't understand what's going on with the gin- ginormous ears that an elephant has, right? So they have these big, beautiful ears that flow, and, and I was reading this um, study on these elephants, And they were talking about the internal construction of the the ears of the elephant. And basically what they were saying is they were saying that elephants can hear tones that are so low that like 98% of, of creatures cannot hear that tone because it's so low. And they can also hear pitches so high that like 98% of creatures cannot hear. And then they can hear everything in the middle. But because of the construction of their ears, when they hear this low tone or this really high pitch, because of the internal workings, it doesn't destroy them. The way that you and I, if we heard certain pitches, it it would explode our eardrums. But for an elephant, it does not do that because of the internal makeup that's going on. And when I think about a prophet, that is usually what I think of. I don't think of a person with giant ears. I think of a person with giant spiritual ears, right? They have this unique ability to hear some things from the Lord that the average person just, not, just does not have the ability to hear. And so when we, when we think of prophets, it's important for us not to, not to elevate them or think that they are you know, something different or special or a spectacle or anything like that, but they do carry a uniqueness about them that we need to value and we need to appreciate. And so some of the reasons we need to value um, the prophets is, is because number one, they can uh, help us avoid harm or, or hurt, right? So again, Agabus or even you know, uh, Elijah in, in the Old Testament, they, they talk about famines and they warn the kings to prepare themselves and to prepare the nation. They, they, are, they are getting a prophetic word in their giant ears from the Lord and they're proclaiming it to the people so that the people can make preparations. Um, we need to value prophets because they're able to give us God's perspective on things. You remember when um, Elijah is is standing outside, there's the army around and we write the song and sing the song about it. Um, There's an army around, but the Lord opens his eyes to see that around that physical army is a spiritual army around them that the average person just could not see. And so there are tremendous benefit for, for prophets being a part of the local body of believers because they can give us God's perspective on things that the average person may not be able to. Um, we also um, value them because they, they help us to uh, hear. They're, they're very, they have an anointing to speak truth in a very clear cut, profound way. It helps us to repent quickly. If you have ever been around a prophet, and were courageous enough to go to them, uh, I'm sure that you have had friends or family members that have gone to conferences where a prophet was or somebody with a strong prophetic gifting and, and you go up and, and you walk away or they walk away and they come to you later and they said, they read my mail, right? That's the line they say, they, they just read my mail. They told me everything I've ever done wrong, you know? And, and they told me what I need to fix in life. Prophets have this unique ability not to shame the people of God, but to call the people of God up and out of sin. And so, we need to to value the prophets. We don't need to be afraid of the prophets. We don't need to be um, afraid of all this. At the same time as we value the prophets, we also need to be cautious of the prophets. And I I hate that word. I hope you will understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to be afraid of the prophets. I'm not saying that, you know, well, there's 100 prophets and 98 of them aren't too good. You know, um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in our broken humanity, it's easy for us to deal with supernatural things in the wrong way, okay? So for example, um, one of the reasons we need to be cautious around prophets is because those of us who are so hungry for the presence of the Lord and to grow in the spiritual giftings, if we are not careful, we can begin to idolize prophets right? So instead of seeking the face of God in my prayer closet, now I'm just trying to go to get a word from the Lord from someone else, right? Or I become like, for lack of a better term, like a groupie, right? And I'm just following wherever the prophet goes. You know, I need to I need to hear a word from the Lord, kind of thing. And and though I understand it, I think it's good. It begins with good intentions, but I think oftentimes because we're dealing with something that's so supernatural, the natural person doesn't know how to deal with it. And We get things uh, misaligned and we get things confused sometimes. So we got to be aware of our own hearts, our own disposition toward prophets. Um, secondly, I think we need to be um, I hate the word cautious. We we need to be aware that um, we can misunderstand the messages of a prophet, right? So we can, they, they may have a word from the Lord for us, but we may misunderstand. And if we don't handle that the right way, by measuring it against the word of God, by seeking counsel from the people of God, if we're not careful, we can misunderstand the prophetic message to us personally, Okay. Thirdly, we need to be cautious of of the prophets because the prophets can misunderstand the message of God, okay? And, And I'm just saying, prophets are not infallible. They are high and to be regarded and honored and esteemed, but they are not infallible. And so we need to make sure that we are measured in our response And we need to make sure that we do proper diligence to make sure um, that we're truly hearing from the Lord. Number four, um, based out of the book of Jeremiah, Prophets have the ability um, to speak out of their own spirit, to prophesy out of their own spirit. This is what was happening in Jeremiah's day. There were hundreds of prophets that were prophesying. They were saying, the Lord declares peace over Israel. The Lord declares peace. And one prophet comes in on Jeremiah. Jeremiah is saying, you are wrong. And he comes and he basically attacks Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, look, because you've done this and because you have prophelied, the Lord is going to take your life and remove you from the face of the earth right and so um jeremiah explains it and he says these men were prophets he identifies them as prophets but they were prophesying out of their own spirit okay and so it's important for us to understand the the that this is not an infallible situation the fifth reason that we need to be aware is because false prophets do exist usually the, the prophetic office will oftentimes speak two things or two situations or two world events that are outside of scripture, but it should never contradict scripture. Does that make sense? So, So everything that a modern day prophet says you're not going to be able to find it necessarily in the scriptures, but it should align with the scriptures and not contradict the scriptures. If it contradicts the scriptures, it's wrong. There's no question, there's no discussion, there's no argument, it's wrong if it contradicts the scriptures. And so it's important that we understand this. Jesus said, look, Jesus said there, there are gonna be many false prophets that arise, and they deceive many people. Paul says, look, don't be deceived by the false prophets or the false shepherds that come into play. But in the same time, what Paul says is that we also should not despise prophecy, right? So, so sometimes if I'm going through a, a message like this and I say all the reasons that we should be cautious of, and I, again, I hate that word, but cautious of prophets, oftentimes what people will say is, look, if there's that much you know, potential danger, I'm gonna just stay away, I'm gonna just stay away. No, that is not what God's word directs us to. Paul says this. He says, Look, do not scorn or reject gifts of prophecy or prophecies, the spoken revelation or words of instruction or exhortation or warning. Do not despise these. Don't scorn or reject these. But test these things carefully so that you can recognize what is good. Hold firmly to that which is good. And so Paul's saying, look, look, there, there are all these kind of there are all these kind of reasons. You need, to, you need to guard. You need to just make sure that, that you're walking the right way when you're, when you're dealing with things in the supernatural realm. But listen, don't despise it. Don't reject it just because you don't understand it. Don't reject it just because you're afraid of it. Embrace it. Measure it. Test it. Measure it with, with the people of God. Measure it with the word of God. Measure it with the spirit of God see what the Spirit of God says, and then hold fast to what is good, and so we 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 just gotta walk and make sure that we're not being deceived. We gotta walk and make sure that we're not uh, being despised. And I'll say this um, from the from the first century, these there were certain protocols that were set in place regarding the office of the prophet. Um, uh, the Didache was one of the one of the first um, historical books. I guess you would say of the first uh, century. Uh, it, it could be called like a church administrative book and. And the book, basically, it's not scripture, but it gives instructions to the first and second century Christians about how to operate and the modes and conduct and these kind of things. And even with the prophets then, um, there are very strict instructions. There are instructions like, listen, when, the, when a prophet comes to town, because they would itinerate, they, they usually wouldn't stay in one spot, but the word of the Lord would spread. It would say when a prophet of God comes to town, make sure you welcome him, make sure you esteem him, make sure you honor him, make sure you do all these things. But then it would go and say, but listen, if a prophet stays at your church in your congregation for more than two days, you need to get him on the road because he may be a false prophet. Right. They say in a moment of inspiration, what he calls spirit led inspiration, if he asks for money or for a meal in that moment, uh, you may want to send him on down the road because he could be a false prophet. This was not accusatory. This was a protective stance that the church was using to keep evil out. Right. And so even in the church today, that's all I'm trying to say is that we need to be wise in our dealings with prophets. Just like we need to be wise in our dealings with, uh, you know, every ministry and with all people. And so um, when we speak um, to the that is speaking directly to the office of the prophet, there is another section which we would call prophetic giftings. That, again, if you if you look at a church like ours, we, we have a lot of people that have prophetic operation in their life, although they may not be possessing the office of a prophet. Okay, Um, so we've got these two layers, but then we've also got to understand that there's a third layer. Right. So I use myself as an example. I I do not consider myself a prophet. Okay, I do not possess the the office of a prophet. Um, I I, uh, I would not say that that I'm daily on a basis encountering prophetic things, but I know that at any given moment, God can use me in a prophetic way right? It's happened a lot of times in my life. So so that's why I need to make sure that I'm filled with the spirit so that when the spirit of the Lord does prompt me to operate in the prophetic, that I can hit stride and I can go in with the spirit, okay? So there are these these three different layers. Am I making sense? I hope I'm making sense here, okay? Um, So that's what we talk about when we talk about the prophets. The third layer is what we call the evangelist, the evangelists in scripture were people that were basically like missionaries. They would go into different lands and they had a specific anointing of gospel presentation. And so they could go in and they could just reach people groups that the average person just could not reach. Um, And oftentimes, especially in the first century, evangelists were, were, they were honored, they were revered. But as time went on, The apostles and the prophets were kind of elevated a little bit more, and and the evangelists and and the pastors and teachers were kind of, you know, pushed to the side as not being as spiritual as not as much authority. But the reality is this, is that especially in the first century, um, without the evangelists, the prophets and the apostles really didn't have an audience to do their ministry. Right, so, so the evangelist would go in first. He would present the gospel. He would win them to Christ. He would back out. An apostle would step in and give structure and authority to the church. The prophets would come in and give direction to the church and the pastors and teachers would step in and, and care for the flock. And so all of these are kind of like working together to create an organism that really honors the Lord. And so evangelists, um, evangelists, um, uh, evangelist, well, that's exactly what they are. They evangelize. They have a unique anointing to evangelize. Uh, Modern day evangelists are no different. Uh, You would know a thousand names. I could throw up several names of evangelists that you look at. Billy Graham. Yep. Uh, Greg Laurie. Yep. Uh, Clayton King. Yep. You look at these men and they hold the office of an evangelist. They could be talking about shampooing their dog and somebody gets saved. I just don't know When you said about the foam and the hair. I just felt like I needed Jesus. And, and they, they just win people to Christ left and right. And they do these crusades and, and all these kind of things. Um, People who operate in evangelistic modes are usually people that are, that are very bold in their witness, right? They don't, they don't back down. There's a little bit of fight in them. Um, A good fight, not, not a bad fight. And the great thing about the evangelist is this, is that the evangelist um, never has to rely on the manipulation to win someone to Christ. Because they operate out of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, so a genuine evangelist, you will never see threats. You will never see like this this twisting of Scripture. You'll you'll you know you'll never see this. You know, I gotta tell a story to make them cry and you know bring them to Jesus. Kind of, you, you'll never see that manipulation. You will sense the anointing of the Holy Spirit that rests on them, and people will come to Christ um, a, as a result of it. Um, I remember, um, you know the. I remember reading in, in my studies years and years ago about um, the first Assemblies of God missionaries that, that were being sent all over the world. The, the Assemblies of God is a tremendous, it is, it is an earmark of a missions organization. And our church is incredible. Pastor Tommy leads our missions ministry, which is, we, we are so far above what we should be for a church our size. We're like what a church double our size should do missions wise. It's incredible. But I remember reading early on and, and the guys early on when they were dealing with missionaries, uh, back in that day, if you were a missionary, you were basically an evangelist because you were going into an unknown land and you were trying to win people's souls. If you had, hopefully you had a pastoral gift so that you could you know, develop the church But if you didn't have a strong evangelistic gift, you were not going to be able to be a missionary in that day. And I remember reading um, about interviews that missionaries would come. They would say they would sit before the board and they would say, I feel like God has called me to the mission field. And they would list all the reasons why. And the guys on the other side of that table would grill them. One one guy said, my objective is to convince him that he is not called to do missions work, because if I can convince him that he's not called to do it, then he's not called to do it. And I thought, ooh, that is harsh. But the reality is this, right? The reality is this, is that these people in the Assemblies of God in that moment, they understood how critical the, the office of an evangelist was. And they were not making room for people who wanted to be evangelists but did not have the call of the office on their life. They needed people to expedite the gospel around the globe who had the calling of an evangelist to rest on their life. And so when we, when we uh, talk about evangelists, that's kind of a nutshell. Um, the fourth office, real quickly, what we talk about is, is who we call the pastors, okay? Um, pastors in scripture, literally are caretakers of the flock. The the word pastor is translated shepherd. The word shepherd is translated one who feeds. So this is why as Jesus is restoring Peter, Peter walks to Jesus and what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, will you feed my sheep? right? He asked him over and over, will you feed my sheep? And what Jesus was doing is he was saying, Peter, in the same way that a physical shepherd, he is a one who feeds, you in a spiritual sense will be one who feeds your flock, right? And so the, the gift of, of a pastor is a very covenant-oriented ministry. Out of all the ministries, it probably requires the most Um, And again, I'm a pastor, so I'm I'm sure I'm biased when I say this, but I would say that it requires the highest level of commitment than the other four. I would say that it requires being able to take it on the chin more than the other four, because a pastor is not somebody who can come in and tell you what you've done wrong and dip out of town and go to the next place and, you know, have a stake and tell somebody else what they've done wrong. That is not the calling of a pastor. A pastor does that, and they have to help the person beyond that sin. They have to help that person be restored. It is a very covenant-oriented relationship that a pastor uh, that a pastor has with their flock. Nowadays, th- the same thing exists. Pastors are what we consider caretakers. Um, you know, th- we are not pastors today. Are not mediators between people and Christ. That is not who we are. We are facilitators between people in Christ. We help people along in their relationship with the Lord. But, but scripture makes it incredibly clear that we are all a part of the priesthood. There's no longer a need for a person to mediate between the people and God. Uh, in the Old Testament, you had this idea going of the mediator. You had, you had Moses who would go before the people, then go before God and, and go between, he would, he would be the, the between man. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, you would have the high priest who would go before God in the Holy of Holies to represent the people, have a word from the Lord, give it to the people. There was this mediator with them and with the prophets. In the New Testament church, that mediator is Jesus Christ. The mediator, the scripture says, listen, there's no longer need for a mediator. The only mediator, your new high priest is Jesus Christ and you have full uh, functioning access to him. And so when we, we understand that, that this is not a mediation between people and God, this is what um, you know a, a couple of centuries ago got the Roman Catholic Church in a lot of trouble. Um, there, were, there were priests who would basically, and this wasn't all the priests, but there were some corrupt priests that would set themselves up as mediators between the people of God. And they would basically manipulate and pervert the system and say, you know, if you want access to God, if you want forgiveness from God, you come to me. You talk to me. And if you want forgiveness, if you'll give the church X, Y, Z, you'll give me a meal or give church money or whatever. I will go to God and ask him to forgive you. And hopefully he will forgive you. Got the church in a whole heap of a mess, which brought about the Protestant Reformation which some, some great men of God stood up and said, this is not right. Jesus was our, our final mediator between God and man. There's no longer a reason for people to stand between this. And so, so today it's, it's no different. We are not mediators, we are facilitators, but we are shepherds. And scripturally speaking and today speaking, shepherds are, are people, if you take a physical shepherd, we were in Israel a couple of years ago and I am still so bitter because the entire 11 days we were there, all I wanted to do was see one shepherd in the wilderness. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to see, like, I mean, you know, the empty tomb was amazing. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Calvary was all this kind of stuff. But there was one thing on my list that I didn't get to check off, and it was seeing a modern day shepherd shepherding sheep, you know? And Sarah Cabra, every time she would see one, she would say, Hey, shepherd. And I'd look real quick and it'd be gone. That probably happened like seven or eight times. <laughs> I got to go back to Israel so I can see um, a shepherd. But my my point is this, is that even modern day shepherds, they they, they have a responsibility over to the flock that is threefold. One of their responsibilities is to guide the flock where they need to go. Sheep are not the most incredible animals on the planet. They're not incredibly brilliant or intelligent. They have been known to follow each other off of cliffs, to their immediate death. So they need guidance. They need direction from shepherds. But secondly, what shepherds do is they protect the flock. They they beat off ravenous wolves or any type of pestilence that, that may try to come in. They make sure that the flock is protected, but they also make sure that sometimes when necessary in the rare situations that the flock is corrected. See, oftentimes what can happen in in shepherding is that physical sheep, if you're going in one direction and you have to get from point A to point B, the sheep can oftentimes begin to go off into another direction that they don't need to go. And so this is why shepherds have staves, and they kind of, you know, make sure that they're, they're guiding the sheep in the right direction of where they need to know. But, but just like with, with humans, it would be just like with our children, there is going to be a sheep that continues to go off, even though you've been able to get all the other ones on. And at a certain point, what shepherds will do is they will correct that sheep. They will use their staff and they will, they will whack it on the head or on the noggin, you know, and, and make sure it steps in line. Um, I remember I was, um, I was growing up and my cousin had this painting in his house and it was, it was a shepherd boy and the shepherd boy had a staff in his hand and he had the satchel and all that. And I, I don't know why I was fascinated with it even as a child. And I remember looking at the, the painting one time and, and some renditions of the painting, the shepherd boy has a, a lamb that is over his shoulder And in some of the paintings, you will see that not only is he holding the lamb like this over his shoulder, but in some of them, the lamb has a bandage around his leg. And so when you you go and research and inspect and you learn more about the painting, what you understand is this, is that shepherds oftentimes, if they had a wayward sheep time and time and time again, and they ran out of space to give them a a knot on the head with their staff, At a certain point, in order to protect the sheep, ultimately, they would take the sheep and they would lay it down, and they would take their staff and they would break the leg of the lamb. The powerful part about it is that they would not leave the lamb for dead. They would take the sheep, they would set its leg, its broken bone back together. They would bandage it in a makeshift cast, and then they would take that lamb for four, six weeks and they would walk with that lamb with them the rest of the way. That is a beautiful and incredibly accurate picture of a modern day shepherd. Shepherds are people who lovingly guide the flock. They protect the flock with biblical doctrinal teaching, but they also, in the rare necessary cases, they correct the flock when, when they seem to go off course and they do it in a loving and godly way. And so when we talk about pastors, this is, this is what we're talking about. Um, again, it is, uh, it is very covenant oriented. Um, it is very, of course, it's very special to my heart, but it's a very, a very important office, especially here in the Western culture, um, because it seems to be that we have uh, just an incredible influx of, of pastors in our nation. Fifth and finally, and I've got to hurry. Fifth and finally is what we call the office of the teacher. Uh, in scripture, teacher had a, teachers had an incredible gift of teaching. And um, in the first century, it's important to understand that, that the first century Christians did not have a Bible right they did not have a bible in the way that we have the bible today oftentimes letters were circulated around to churches and by the time sometimes it got to other churches the letters were tattered and destroyed and half missing and torn apart and so teachers in the early church they would receive a copy of the letter they would stand before the people and they would read the letter to the people and then what they would have the responsibility to do is help the people understand what the scripture was saying right? So you got to understand that for many of these first century teachers, they were stepping into environments with, with the church in Rome. The church in Rome had never heard of Christianity. They were surrounded by false gods and idols and greed and money and idolatry and sexuality. They were surrounded and inundated with all this. Somehow they come to faith in Christ, but they don't know where to go from there, And so the teacher shows up on the scene with a group of new converts, and he has the responsibility to read the scripture that he has and help them understand contextually. This is what happened with Moses, and we see it played out in the life of Jesus. This is what happened in the Old Testament. This is what happened in Jesus's life. This is how we saw Jesus risen from the dead and ascend into heaven. And so the teacher had a very unique responsibility to bring the people of God along to grow them, to help them settle in to the soil so that they could grow and to become everything that God had called them to be. And today, that teaching gift is is very much the same. Usually a person with a teaching gift has a very unique anointing, which is able to understand God's word and communicate God's word in a way that's understandable to the people of God right? So this is a, a very unique thing. There are some that, that believe that the pastor and the teacher are synonymous, that they're, they're basically tied together and they're the same thing. Um, I, would, I would disagree with that for this reason. Um, I, I think that there can be a biblical case made that an elder or a pastor should be able to teach the word of God. So I understand that in some way, every pastor is a teacher, but I'm going to tell you this, every teacher ain't a pastor. OK, I could take you to some professors that are incredible teachers that I would never want pastoring my family. OK. And so so they're, they're very distinct. They're, they're, I understand why they're tied together, but they are definitely different offices um, that are possessed. Teaching has a very um, a very sobering warning attached to it, James, the brother of Jesus, he would say, look, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So it's the super sobering understanding that, that listen, people who teach the word of God, it is so important that we understand that, that we have to be a people that teach what God's word says, not what we want God's word to say. And there is a difference, there is a very big difference. In American culture, we need incredible discernment as we listen to podcasts and as we uh, go and we look at Christian's live stream and then we visit other churches on live stream, which is fine and I think we should do that. I'm just saying this, we need to use wisdom and discernment and discretion when we're doing that to make sure that these people are teaching the whole counsel of the word of God. And so so to wrap this this all up, these are the five-fold ministries of the church. We believe that all five of these should be operating in the church at some level, okay? That does not mean that we got to have an office of an apostle standing here in this church for us to be qualified as a legitimate church. That is not what that means. What I mean is that there there needs to be apostolic ministry happening within the church. There needs to be prophetic ministry happening within the church for us to fall under what we call a New Testament church or or body of believers. So we believe all this, but we also, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just, this is one thing I love about Paul. He's just incredible. He says, look, this is all the things and God has given you these people as gifts for your church. Love them and honor them and and encourage them. Do all this because they are helping you in ways that you may not even understand. And so Paul then goes in just three or four verses, he just goes down and he says, listen, this is all the ways that you are gonna benefit from these people that God sends your way. And, and so he gives us six really quick, really quick reasons. We're wrapping up. Pastor Justin's gonna come and pray. Number one is this for spiritual maturity. The reality is this. When I become more mature, we become more mature. When you become more mature, we become more mature. It's like I said a couple of weeks ago, when, when, when we gather together in God's presence, we all have either open heaven or closed heavens over us, right? So we all have this, this unique relationship with God. But when you get a large group of people, the people of God together, and many of them have open heavens over God, all of a sudden, it's not just that I have an open heaven, but we have an open heaven. Does that make sense? And so when I grow in maturity in my part of the body, the entire body is growing in maturity. When you grow in maturity, the entire body is growing in maturity. And Paul says, this is so that you will not be immature anymore, right? He's not talking to Christian life. He's talking to the church at Ephesus, but it's something that all of us need to hear at different points in our life. So he speaks to us for spiritual maturity. Secondly, for spiritual stability. I love so much that my wife is here tonight. She hasn't been to church in year. Actually, she was here Sunday. And uh, I say years, I'm kidding, the pandemic. She hasn't been to church because we have little ones. And tonight she brought our newest who just turned six weeks old. And uh, her name is Aubrey Grace. And um, I love children at this age, okay? I promise I'm closing real quick. I love children at this age because she's just getting to the place where I can like, you know, jostle around a little bit without hurting anything or breaking anything, you know, for the first six weeks, I'm like, can I touch her? Like, is she going to break if I, if I, you know, kiss her on the head? Now she's getting to the place where I can kind of, you know, I can, I can grab her and I can do her. The other day I, I took her, I love taking my little ones and, and making them dance on the floor like that. in their little head bottles. Um, I love children at this age and I know this is terrible, but if you're a dad, I know that you've done this. When your children start that phase where they're just beginning to learn to walk, I guarantee it, and Lord forgive me if I'm the only one, but I can just about guarantee you moms that every dad in here has seen a child who is just learning to walk and from time to time just kind of poked them and to see them fall like that. I can almost guarantee it's happened almost every single time. You know why? Because it's funny. It is hilarious to see a child, like now it's not kind, I make sure my kid's not hitting a wall, but it's just so funny to see them try to catch their balance and everything. And the reality, the reality is this, is that children, especially young ones, they have propensities to stumble. right? Especially when they're first learning to get their legs, They have a propensity to stumble, especially if any little thing just nudges them the wrong way. It's, you know, I could just kind of, and they're, ah, you know, and they fall way along. Nothing, almost nothing causes, you know, just a brief little brush by causes them to stumble. But it's also children are easily tricked right? And, and we've all done this on some level, whether the Easter bunny brought you a basket or whatever. Children are just, they're, they're naive and in the, they're innocent in the best of ways. They, they just believe you and they love you and they trust you. There are all these things. And what Paul's doing here, he's saying, listen, we all begin like spiritual children and we all can stumble on a pebble and we all can be so easily deceived and we can be tricked the reason that we're giving you these gifts of men and women to the body of Christ is so that you will no longer stumble. It's so that you can no longer be deceived. It's so that when you hear bad doctrine, when you hear false teaching, that you recognize it and you turn your ship the other way. He's saying, This is for your benefit. This is why they are called gifts, because they're for our good. And Paul's saying, It's because we all start off like little children and we need spiritual stability, spiritual wisdom. We need to be able to discern what Christ says and what our culture says. That does not just happen without men and women of God who can shape us and mold us in the way that we need to be. We need spiritual stature. We need to grow in the likeness of Christ. We need spiritual giftedness, which next week we're gonna talk about. And I promise you all will not take this long. But number six, when we have all these things, Paul says, look, when you begin to grow in all these things, it's not just you that's growing. He says the entire body is rising together and you're becoming everything that God wants you to become as a local body of believers. And so tonight, I want to pray for you, and then Pastor Justin is gonna come and pray for you, I guess. Um, But I just want to encourage us. Paul says that the offices of these things are very, very important, and I get that. They, They really are very important. But for all of us as believers, Paul says, look, do your best to desire and to excel in the spiritual gifts. Desire these things. Desire the prophetic gifting in your life. Desire the the teaching ability in your life. Desire these things. You may not hold the office, but ask God to increase your capacity and your anointing to do the things that he's called you to do. And when we all do our part, we all rise into something very, very special. We're already seeing that very, very special In this church family that's gathered. We are seeing it, I believe it. Father, we love you so much tonight. Thank you for every gift that you've given to your church. I thank you for every gift that you've given to Christian life. These precious people are incredible. And my prayer, Lord, is that you will cause a new desire to arise, that you will widen our capacities, and that you will increase our anointings to fulfill the call of God that rest on our lives. I pray you'll bless your people tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you so much. Pastor Justin, will you come?